The Genius of Creation A study of Genesis chapters 1 to 6 by Brother Paul Cresswell and read by Paul Cresswell The Genius of Creation A narrative from creation to the flood in Genesis 1 to 6 This is too harmonious, grand and overwhelming a universe to believe that it's all an accident. Professor Maurice Schwartz, cited in Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Albom. Preface The Bible record of creation is a work of absolute genius, which when understood will be seen to be far from primitive. Compared to the ancient records of various peoples, the Genesis account is not only unique, it is also believable. This book is written in the hope that it will be read by some who have either been misled by atheists or hover uncertain between creation and evolution. It is also intended to reassure any believer in creation and strengthen their faith in the inspired Word of God, the Bible. The amazing book we call the Bible begins with the words, In the beginning God created, and ends with the word, Amen. Not until that final Amen can it be said the creation is truly completed and God's purpose fulfilled. In other words, the creation record is an essential part of God's plan of salvation. It is confirmed so many times in the ensuing books of the Bible that it is the springboard for many of God's teachings that are enlarged upon as we continue reading right to the end of the 66 books that comprise the Bible. So we begin with creation in Genesis chapter 1 and continue to the flood which is recorded from Genesis chapter 6. At the start of the creation week, the earth is covered with water and void of life. The flood, which occurred about 1600 to 1700 years later, again covered the earth with water, so that the earth became void of life again, except for fish, the sea creatures, and for eight persons and those animals and birds collected in the ark. Here is a whole cycle of life and death, a microcosm of life, a beginning and an end as a sign to us living in this godless world. These first six chapters are the foundation of all that follows. Therefore, we will follow through the Bible many of the ideas that flow from the first chapters to see how themes are developing for our understanding. We will see the amazing harmony of the scriptures to be convinced of the divine inspiration behind what is written, that faith may be confirmed and developed in the reader. And no, this is not just another book on the creation-evolution debate. Apart from a few comments below, this book is intended to draw out to the true meaning and wonder of the first six chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Understanding what God has caused to be written is the strongest answer to men's theories. 
even though their theories may be expressed in confident and complex language. As far as evolution is concerned, after more than 40 years reading books and articles on the subject, I, as many others, have concluded that no truly scientific proof of evolution exists, despite claims to the contrary. For a scientific theory to be accepted as true, it must be replicated experimentally. This replication has not been done and cannot be done. Let me cite just three scientists working in the field of evolution. Evolution by natural selection is not strictly speaking scientific because it is established by logical deduction rather than empirical demonstration. This from a British Museum brochure, the Darwin Exhibition of 1981. Colin Patterson, FRS, I will lay it on the line. There is not one fossil, a fossil which is ancestral or transitional, for which one could make a watertight argument. Cited by John C. Lennox in God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Page 115. We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the story of adoptive change, knowing all the time that it does not. Niles Eldridge, curator, Invertebrate Paleontology, American Museum of Natural History, opposite page 114. Evolution has been summarised as nothing plus nobody equals everything. Now, that really would be a miracle. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is reputed to have said, Beware of the wisdom of Greece, for it has no fruit, only flowers. Similarly, atheism may look attractive, but it gives no purpose to life. It has no answer to death. It holds out no hope. It ends in the grave. Whereas God holds before us the joy of a time when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2 verse 14. With the Lord Jesus Christ we can say, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Luke 10 verse 21. Of course, many will prefer to believe that evolution occurred, however weak the evidence for it, because, as the Apostle Peter said, for this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 5. But the fact remains, God, through his word, the Bible, recovers men and women's lives broken and shattered by sin, whereas atheism, with its doctrine of evolution, can save no one, only destroy. Of course, creation cannot yet be proved either. We cannot replicate it, though the evidence for it is overwhelming. 
This book is an introduction to that evidence. Evolutionists frequently say that they believe evolution because the alternative is unthinkable. Through observation of the incredible range and complexity of life around us, I believe creation because the alternatives to creation is unthinkable. A far stronger case can be made for creation than for evolution. May the Creator grant to the reader understanding and wisdom. Prologue the first and last books of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, have suffered more attempts to discredit them than any of the others. Genesis by evolutionary atheists and Revelation by church leaders because it is said to be too mysterious. In fact, Genesis and Revelation are probably the two most important books of the Bible. Genesis in particular is the essential foundation upon which true understanding of the whole Bible is based, while understanding Revelation will keep us sound in doctrine by showing us the errors of the age in which a believer happens to live. If we start at the beginning of the Bible, take what is written and is due, or at least consider with caution what is not written, a wonderful story unfolds that is at once dramatic, satisfying, and above all, a story full of hope. God's Purpose So we ask, what is God's purpose? The Bible answers, to fill the earth with his glory through men and women who reflect his glorious character. And despite mankind's near total failure so far, God's purpose still stands, for he has sworn by himself, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Numbers 14 verse 21. Consequently, the Bible finishes with a wonderful and glorious fulfilment of the creation story. The final denouement will begin soon with the coming of the Lord to judge the wicked and establish his kingdom on earth and end after another 1,000 years with the earth full of his glory. As we read the Bible account of creation in the book of Genesis, we'll see that it is not just a, this is what happened, and once that's out of the way we can get on with the real story. It is a grand and striking beginning to God's book. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. No other book ever written begins with such grandeur and import. Indeed, the whole of the creation account, far from being primitive, is uh, the masterpiece of all prose and key to the whole plan of God, a classic writing beyond compare. Evolutionary ideas are written in terms of it may be that, or it is thought that, or perhaps, expressions that indicate speculation, not scientific fact. On the other hand, the Bible is absolutely authoritative. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, or Let there be light, and there was light, or It is written. 
There was an all-wise, all-powerful intelligence possessing in himself the focalized power of the universe and capable of imparting that initiative power that is required for the explanation of what we see. While the Darwinian theory gives us external force without wisdom or will to do a thing which required both in their supremest form. Robert Roberts' Visible Hand of God, page 12. When Genesis 1 is put alongside the stories and creation records of other tribes around the world, both ancient and modern, this Hebrew record stands out as being totally unique. One is left with the impression that the ancient writer must have been inspired, as he certainly was. This could only be the inspired record of the architect and builder who planned it all and brought the universe and life into being. But beware. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, begins with God and ends with a coffin in Egypt. It is a true record of the folly of mankind who will not remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. From Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1. In allowing God's written word to tell us what he did and how he did it, we must not be distracted by the ideas, however forcefully pressed, put forward by those who weren't there and therefore can only guess what happened. Strangely, there is one thing upon which both the Bible and evolutionists agree. There was a beginning. Atheists don't have to agree that there was a beginning, but despite themselves, such a conclusion is forced upon them by the evidence. They say that before there was anything else, there were quantum fluctuations, that is, laws of gravity. Science says that these laws of gravity predate the universe. Though not intended, that's another way of saying that God existed before anything else. Even more telling, evolutionary scientists now tell us that all mankind is descended from one woman whom they call mitochondrial Eve. These evolutionary theorists do not say that there was only one woman existing at the time, and there are other differences to the creation account in the Bible. But, nevertheless, to say that all come from Eve is a remarkable statement. There is also Y-chromosomal Adam, from whom male DNA, and therefore all males, are said to be inherited. For more information, see Wikipedia or similar. Theistic evolution sometimes put forward the idea that men and women, male and female hominids, evolved over millions of years, and then God made the first human pair exactly the same, so that intermarriage occurred and one cannot tell the difference between them. The Bible knows nothing of this totally illogical invention. Why would evolution of men and women occur over millions of years and then God made the same creatures in one day? In any case, the Genesis record says that the earth was void of human or any other kind of life before God began to fill the earth and adds, 
there was not a man to till the ground. Genesis 1 verse 2 and 2 verse 5. The Apostle Paul adds, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. He also says, quoting the Greek poet Aratus, we are also his God's offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, in Acts 17 verse 28 and 29. We either accept the Bible as true or we must abandon it altogether. There is no middle ground. As the Bible says, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions or machinations. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29. As the years pass, the theories of how evolution worked have been constantly changing. What was once accepted has fallen by the wayside as new theories are developed. It seems strange that so many found their lives upon such shifting sands that are ever moving in a flood of theories. We must be based on the rock of God's word. As for ourselves, our ideas must be firmly based on the rock of God's word. Lest we get carried away by our own or another's theories, we have a sensible limitation set for us at the end of the last book of the Bible. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add to the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree, margin, of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. We must not be wise above that which is written. Let us see the glory of God in his creation and give him the praise due to him. Before commencing to discuss the account of creation, let me make an important point about the Bible. The Bible cannot be read like a novel. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. We read in Proverbs 25 verse 2. This is where some modern translations of the Bible, easily read and requiring little effort to understand, miss the essential depth of ideas that bring mental development. The Bible is not a product of men's minds. It is a product of God's mind, which is so much higher than ours. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55 verse 8 to 9 Every serious Bible reader knows this to be true. Nevertheless, God has made our brains and has matched his word to our abilities to understand. He rightly expects that we must make an effort and exercise our God-given abilities to lift our minds above the ordinary level of human life, 
we must reach for the higher spiritual plane of what he has revealed for our learning and wisdom. The Bible can be understood on different levels. There is the immediate level of what has happened in history and what is to happen in the future. And then there are the spiritual, we might say, moral lessons that lie on a higher plane altogether but are not ambiguous to the thoughtful, prayerful reader. In this book I intend to develop some of these deeper truths as an illustration of the divine inspiration and overall harmony of the 66 books of the Bible. These themes will not be fully developed. No one is able to do that. But point out to the reader where fruitful study will enable spiritual growth that is exciting and lead the reader to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent unto life eternal. These are the words of Christ from John 17, verse 3. In other words, to become wise unto salvation. Above this spiritual level is another, which at the present time may be only occasionally glimpsed, but will be revealed to us by Jesus Christ when he comes again. As God said through Moses, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. We cannot know more than God has revealed until he reveals it. This may not fit well with human pride, but it is a truth nonetheless. Dennis Skillet wrote, I happen to believe that every discovery by man is a revelation by God. That is to say, Men discover what God is ready to allow them to know at a set time according to his purpose. Now whilst this statement is true, he is Lord of all, only men who are truly humble will be able to accept it. After all, the practical meaning of the word humility is that we are teachable. An illustration of this last point is given by Luke in the New Testament when he writes that the resurrected Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus spoke of his suffering to two of his disciples, saying, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament was not then written, the things concerning himself. The reaction of the two disciples was, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Luke 24 verse 32. You might ask, why should this be so? It is to make us deeply conscious of the power and omniscience of God, so that we will in faith and wisdom trust our lives to him completely. Our example here is Moses, the writer of Genesis, of whom it is written, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11 verse 27 now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, 
that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, by the Spirit-inspired word of God, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, says Paul in the first of Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. May the Lord bless the reader in his search for truth, understanding and wisdom. Book of Genesis The Failure of Mankind Met by the Salvation of God The title of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, meaning beginning, is Greek. The Hebrew title is Bereshith, meaning in the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It talks about the beginning of everything except God, who had no beginning. He alone is eternal. He has always existed and always will. This is a difficult concept to accept because it is outside our experience. But then, so is evolution. The first five books of the Bible, known as the Law, were written by Moses, the great lawgiver of the Hebrews. The Lord Jesus Christ confirmed this when he said, the law was given by Moses in John 1 verse 17 and many other passages in the four Gospels. Also in the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke, particularly Acts chapter 7 verses 37 to 38 and in six epistles of the New Testament. Despite this, critics are quick to say that the idea that Genesis and the law were written by Moses is a myth although they have no evidence whatsoever for their assertion. For example, Andrew Parker, in his book The Genesis Enigma, Why the Bible is Scientifically Accurate, page 241. Here I must add a caveat, for the Bible is a work of divine inspiration. Moses was acting as God's amanuensis, as were the later writers, Dr. Adam Clark wrote, 
The narrative is so simple, so much like truth, so consistent everywhere with itself, so correct in its dates, so impartial in its biography, so accurate in its philosophical details, so pure in its morality, and so benevolent in its design, as amply to demonstrate that it never could have had an earthly origin. Quite so. Genesis can be divided into 11 sections according to where genealogies are mentioned. All but the first section beginning with the phrase, the generation of, or similar, as follows. Chapter 1 verse 1, of course, begins with creation, and then chapter 2 verse 4 with the generations of the heaven and the earth. Chapter 5 verse 1 continues the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 11, verse 10, the generations of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 27, the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. Chapter 25, verse 19, the generations of Isaac, chapter 36, verse 1, the generations of Esau, and chapter 37 to the end, the generations of Jacob. The suggestion has also been made of nine divisions following the idea of beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, of course, the beginning of the universe. Chapter 1, verse 26, the beginning of mankind. Chapter 3, verse 1, the beginning of sin. Chapter 3, verse 8, the beginning of redemption. Chapter 4, verse 1, the beginning of family life. Chapter 4, verse 16, the beginning of godliness. Chapter 10, verse 1, the beginning of nations. Chapter 11, verse 1, the beginning of languages, and chapter 12, verse 1 to the end, the beginning of the Hebrews. Subdivisions can be made within this framework, but we can see that Genesis records both the beginning and the failure of mankind on the one hand, and God's generous offer of salvation on the other. Even in the best environment in the Garden of Eden, man failed. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5 verse 20. Graham W. Scroggy wrote, Divine electing grace dominates the book of Genesis. Of Adam's sons, Cain drops out and Seth is taken. Of Noah's sons, Ham and Japheth drop out and Shem is taken. Of Terah's sons, Nahor and Haran drop out and Abram is taken. Of Abram's sons, Ishmael drops out and Isaac is taken. Of Isaac's sons, Esau drops out and Jacob is taken. And of Jacob's sons, Judah is elected to be the line of Messiah. This is in chapter 49 and verse 10. 
Beneath and behind the historic redemption is the eternal election of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. And this taken from Know Your Bible, volume 1, Genesis page 22. The glory of God in creation. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter, we read in Proverbs 25, verse 1 and 2. Since at his creation man was given dominion, he must of necessity be involved in revealing the glory of God, morally at present, but more fully in the coming new creation. For God promised, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. Numbers 14, verse 21. All creation is eloquent of the existence and omnipotence of the Creator. But only the Word of God can reveal His character and purpose to us. And so it is written, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The Lord of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This from Psalm 19, verse 1 and verse 7. Creation around us testifies to a creator. So all who will be wise must come at last to the word of God. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, says Paul in the second of Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. At sunrise each day, creation is repeated in a figure. Light shines out of darkness, and the beauty of the earth is revealed again as in the beginning. And as at the beginning, each day we have in a figure the choice of partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of life. That choice determines whether we will have darkness forever in death, or a glorious and eternal future. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. These opening words of the Bible, a sentence of only seven words in the Hebrew, are a dramatic and remarkable statement without equal in literature. They form a prologue which introduces God and his word, the Bible, to the reader. How true are the words of the psalmist when he wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 19, verse 1. Of course, the beginning does not mean God's beginning, but the beginning of his creative work. To those who think they know more about the beginning than has been revealed, God says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. In Job 38, verse 1. In the New Testament, John opens his gospel with the words, In the beginning was the word, the Greek logos, the expression of thought or purpose. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
With God and no one else, there was no one else there. God was alone. He was not created. In Nehemiah's time, eight Levites stood and led the praises of the people with the words, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all things that are therein, and thou preservest them all. This in Nehemiah 9, verse 6. There is but one eternal God who, having created all things, is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. A truth which is either comforting or threatening, depending on how we decide to react to him. Robert Roberts wrote, The obligation to obey an invisible God arises out of the fact that he has made himself visible in his acts, before calling upon us to submit to him. This from the visible hand of God, page 2. Evidence for God is found firstly in these acts, particularly in his acts of creation and in the history of Israel. Secondly, in his word of the Bible, particularly in the fulfilled Bible prophecy. And thirdly, in our moral conscience. Let me explain. In relation to the study of natural science, or creation, the Apostle Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the foundation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Romans 1 verse 18 to 23. This creative God is not only seen in his works but also in the history of Israel, because that nation who were created for his glory is his witness, we read in Isaiah 43, verse 7 to 12. They are witnesses by word and by their history, because, as Moses said to Israel, ye have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh and to all his servants, and to all his land, the great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and these great miracles. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 and 3. We will not here pursue this witness, however, because it does not come within the compass of this book. The third point is interesting because, by definition, evolution denies a moral conscience. Mankind is driven by what Richard Dawkins calls the selfish gene, from which there can be no turning. On the other hand, the Bible says... For when the Gentiles which have not the law, that is, 
God's moral law found in the first five books of the Bible, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness. This from Romans 2, verses 14 to 15. Conscience can only come from a creator, not from a chemical reaction. In the beginning, Bereshith. What do we make of this phrase, which is but one word in Hebrew? Some think that the heaven and earth were made about 6,000 years ago. Others have proposed various ages, hundreds of thousands, millions, even billions of years ago. All we know is that the heavens and the earth were made in the beginning. This short phrase in English translates the Hebrew word reshith from the root rosh, head, chief, or first, meaning at first. The title of the first book, Genesis, means beginning. In the beginning, there was no concept of time as we know it. Time measurement for us only began on day one when the heaven and the earth already existed, so we cannot say when the beginning was. Observers put forward evidence that favours both a young and an old earth, depending upon one's point of view. Therefore, we can only be guided by what the Creator has revealed to us in His Word. In fact, it is not until Genesis chapter 5 that passage of time begins to be recorded in years. God is eternal. How the passage of time was measured before day one, or even if it was measured at all, we just don't know. We need to remember that our time is measured by the diurnal revolution of the earth. It would not be possible to measure time as we know it when darkness was upon the face of the deep. In fact, if we were on another planet somewhere else, time would be very different. It would depend on that planet's rotation and the time it took to circumnavigate its sun. Time is important to us mortals. Does it mean anything in eternity? After all, God has always existed. He only hath immortality or deathlessness, we read in the first of Timothy chapter 6 verse 16. Therefore, Elihu can rightly say in Job 26 verse 11, Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. The structure of the Hebrew record, as well as the logical development of information, separates verses 1 and 2, which were in the beginning, from the appearance of light which appeared not in the beginning, but on day 1. Prior to day one, God was hovering over the earth which he had created. On day one he speaks, and suddenly light appears covering the waters with his glory. As others have stated, verses one and two form a prologue to what follows. As such, it is an essential concept to be kept in mind when rereading the Bible through to its end. These two sentences not only introduce the whole of the Bible, but tell us that God is not a local tribal God, but is universal. 
an idea that paves the way for Gentiles to be included in his purpose, as well as Israel, as it is written. Is he God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Romans chapter 3 verse 30. The universe began because God wanted it to. And creation sets God way beyond any mental ability we might claim in our pride. Digression. God. Hebrew Elohim. In the beginning there was only God. There were no deities fighting it out, throwing rocks at each other, bearing children, or any such nonsense as is found in mythology. The one God of the Bible is eternal, uncreate, without antecedent, all-powerful, needing nothing outside of himself. Appropriately, the Hebrew word Elohim is used here for the Creator because it means power or might, and none have power or might to begin to compare with his. When in chapter 2 of Genesis the record begins to deal specifically with mankind, then the Hebrew name Yahweh Elohim is used because it is the name of God manifestation rather than creative power. There is a great distinction between the Creator and man whom he created, a concept that is emphasized in the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea through whom God said, I am God and not man, Hosea 11 verse 9. He is the saviour of man. There can be no hope that man can save himself. There is no mention of his beginning, nor would the idea of God having a beginning be logical. Can we explain this? No. It is outside human experience. But the psalm of Moses begins with the words, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. This from Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. We also read in the Psalms, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 28. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, writing under inspiration, wrote, He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom. He hath stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapours to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth a wind out of his treasures. That's from Jeremiah 51, verses 15 and 16. The Creator is omnipotent, for creation must have taken tremendous power to accomplish. Undoubtedly the Creator's wisdom and understanding was involved in establishing the earth and the heavens. He is still involved in their continuance, for he utters his voice, thunder, 
in the storm clouds and causes evaporation from sea and lakes as part of the water cycle as Jeremiah described 2,500 years ago. Though the water cycle was only discovered by man in comparatively modern times, he is omniscient and omnipresent. Viewing creation, God's existence is self-evident. On the other hand, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Such are fools, because where there is no God, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We read in Judges 21 verse 25. Inevitably this leads to moral corruption in government and private life, until disease, crime, murder, war, drunkenness, drug abuse, pornography, sex abuse, etc., gets completely out of hand and mankind's lowest nature prevails until God is forced to send his judgment to protect the weak and innocent. This we read from Romans 1, verse 24 to 32. This whole process is being accelerated in our world by atheists who won't allow God or his standards to be taught in schools. Judgment is coming. The Hebrew word Elohim, God, found in the Old Testament, is not a name. It is a title or status that means mighty ones. The fact that the word is plural, Eloah is the singular form, begets the question whether the word might refer to a plural God or to the angels. The Bible is emphatic that there is but one God, and there is no other God beside him. We find this in Isaiah 45. But on occasions the word Elohim does refer to angels. For example, in Psalm 8 verse 5, where the Hebrew word Elohim in the King James Version of the Bible is translated as angels. That this translation is appropriate in this psalm is confirmed by the quotation of this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7 in the New Testament, where the Greek word is agoros, meaning messenger or angel. Another passage of the same nature is found in Psalm 97 verse 7, where Elohim, translated as angels in the Septuagint Greek version, is quoted the same way in Hebrews 1 verse 6. A third passage, Psalm 103 verse 20 to 21, also has the Hebrew word Elohim appropriately translated as angels. On a few occasions, Elohim refers to office holders in Israel. For example, in Exodus 31 verse 1 and in Exodus 32 verses 8 and 9. In Psalm 82 verse 1, 6 and 7, Elohim also refers to the elders in Israel, which is confirmed by Jesus Christ when he recites it in John 10 verse 34 to 36. And then in Psalm 45 verse 6, Elohim refers to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The normal word for angel in the Hebrew Old Testament is malak, meaning messenger. Is this confusing? Not when we realise that the word Elohim is descriptive referring to status, 
and the Creator has the highest status in the universe. That Elohim in the opening verse of the Bible refers to the Creator alone is based on two premises. One, that Elohim is by far the most frequently used title for God, used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And two, the verb bara, created, is masculine singular, and this verb governs the noun placed before it. Therefore, some have suggested that the phrase should be rendered as, in the beginning God, he created, to indicate that it is the one God referred to who dwells alone until the angels were created. He, and only he, creates as the prophet Isaiah confirmed when he said, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth bread unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. Isaiah 42 verse 5 And then in Isaiah 45 verse 5 verse 12 and verse 18 I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. What we thankfully recognise is that God, because he is the creator of heaven and earth, is far above any concept of a local or national God. The Apostle Paul confirms this when he wrote, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. From Romans 3 verse 29 to 30. And again. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one, of one blood, all nations of man for to dwell on the face of the earth. Acts 17 verse 24 to 26 which statement, to a believer of the Bible, collapses theistic evolution with its invented hominids. Jesus Christ used the phrase, Lord of heaven and earth, when he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Luke 10 verse 21 As he is our Lord, we have a continual obligation to seek out his will, and to do it. He has made us. He is our master. There is no room for pride on our part. It is recorded in Genesis 11 that our ancestors decided to build a city and tower to make us a name. Genesis 11 verse 4. The confusion that followed led to a multiplication of languages instead of one, as at this day. 
God is supreme. Our duty is not to make a name for ourselves, but to magnify his name. Various ideas have been suggested about what God's form is like. From his word, however, there is no doubt that he has form and substance, for man is made in the image, or after the similitude of God, Genesis 1 verse 6 and James 3 verse 7. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? We read in Psalm 94 verse 9. The Lord said, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. John 5 verse 37 implying that his father does have audible voice and a definite form. In fact, the Lord Jesus, who is God's Son, is said by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 1 verse 3 to be the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Created, Barra. Philosophical atheism says that the universe began out of nothing. But nothing comes from nothing. So where did it all come from? From the Creator himself. What other answer can there be? Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, and thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven, the angels, worship thee. Near my mind, verse 6. It has already been noted that the verb bara, created, is masculine singular. We might also add that it is somewhat surprising that the verb is not used again in the creation week until the fifth and sixth days. In the Bible, the Hebrew word bara, create, is only ever used of God's creative acts. He alone creates, man does not. We will consider more fully how Barra is used in the Bible when discussing the fourth day of creation, but we'll mention here one instance from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18. Here God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice for ever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. Obviously, here God promises that a most significant change is to be brought about on earth. Though this has not happened yet, God promises that he will continue the work of creation to bring about glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. As said, possibly sung, by the angels at the birth of Jesus, recorded in Luke 2, verse 14. That the Lord Jesus Christ believed in creation is certain, for he said, From the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, Mark 13, verse 19. The Heaven and the Earth the heaven is a translation of the plural Hebrew word hashmaim, the heavens. 
In this place the word refers to the universe, of which the earth is a very tiny part. God's intention seems to be to focus our interest on the earth and all things related to it. It follows that the earth, being mentioned separately, must be part of a larger purpose. We know today that this earth is unique. It is specially situated in the solar system with both sun and moon of the right size and distance from the earth for life to exist upon it. Earth is also protected by the massive planet Jupiter placed well outside the earth's orbit, whose magnetic field, twenty times stronger than earth's, attracts asteroids and meteorites that otherwise might hit the earth causing massive damage. Not